Hi. Hi. How is you? I is fine. Is fine. <laughs> I've been um, playing a lot of Cult of the Lamb. Yeah. I'm very bad at roguelikes, but I'm having a lot of fun with the like village maintenance part of it. That's fun. I've been playing a lot of Graveyard Keeper, which is basically just village maintenance. Yeah. It's a good time. Yeah, I thought about picking it up. I just haven't yet, because I'm like, a lot of uh, Cult of the Lamb is like, if you put a dark spin on Stardew Valley, and I'm like, oh yeah, Gravekeeper's kind of like that too. So. Yeah, that's one of the big ones that comes up if you look for games like Stardew Valley. Yeah. Graveyard Keeper is usually on the list. Um. But yeah, it's fun. It's fun making my own little cult, like yeah. my own little uh, setting up my doctrines. And now I have these uh, um, Jonestown-esque uh, propaganda sirens. We don't like that, though. <laughs> to to make people um, pray faster. <laughs> yeah. In Graveyard Keeper, you just get zombies. It's not a cult. That's unfortunate. But you, but you do get zombies. You get to raise the dead, so that's fun. And there's a great donkey who is a communist, and you. I think I remember that from when you were yeah. streaming it forever ago. I like him, donkey for life, donkey comrade. <laughs> we got new RAM for our computer coming too, so we're gonna get to figure out how to put that in. Well, that's fun. So hopefully, I know that... a guy who can help with that if you need. Yeah, hopefully it'll stabilize me a little bit more. That's what I'm looking for. Some some of the games to run a little bit better. Yeah. So. Because you're back to that streaming game. I'm trying. I'm having fun with it. You know, That's my occasional viewer or whatever. But do you have do you you do the the VTuber? Do you have do you have boob boob physics? Uh, so it does, but I hate it. So I actually like crop like the chest out because I can't adjust the boob physics for some reason. I hate boob physics. And so, but yeah, and so like, I don't mind it if it's like kind of like a natural like movement, but for some reason, the boob physics on my VTuber is just like, they're constantly in motion and I'm like, what are you doing? And so I just like crop them out of... Nope. Yeah, don't like that. That's like... And I have, like, the chest on my VTuber on, like, the smallest setting, too. So I'm like, why are they still just, like, bananas? (laughs) Because that's what men want. Like, I can't imagine if I had, like, like a larger chest and just, like, (laughs) how distracting that would be. Do not like... (sighs) You kids and your, I don't know, things that kids do. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, my God. So... We're probably going to get some review from somebody talking about how we talk too much at the intro for this episode, but whatever. Oh, well. So I've been training new people for my department at work, and uh, Friday was their, like, graduation food day, like, congratulations, get the fuck out sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting with them, sitting with some of them, and eating... And I'm like, I I like to think that I stay, I've stayed pretty, I think, Lisa and I were talking about this yesterday, I think that, like, the internet has helped, like, if you want to stay up with, like, the current, like, meme culture, slang, music, all that kind of stuff, like, it's way easier to do it now right? than it ever has been before, so I'm like- right. I'm sitting here and I'm like knowing, I'm understanding what all these Gen Zs around me are saying, but I just, I feel like I'm that Steve Bushimi meme of like, hello, fellow children, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, hello, fellow kids. Yep. I and feel I'm like, that. I've never felt that meme <clears throat> in more viscerally than in that moment. I intentionally like to use like slang from the olden days. Like, I've been saying hella a lot more lately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I say hella a lot too. Hella, uh, Uber, but like not like the not like the the car. Being like that's Uber cool. <laughs> I haven't gone there yet. We'll see. Uh, cool beans. Uh, yeah, cool beans has made it back into my rotation, um, mainly because I like to respond with uh, Jeff from Parks and Rec. <laughs> with uh, um, Nick Offerman when he Tammy one comes back and he's like. Yeah acting like super uncomfortably normal and he's just like that'd be cool beans cool beans yep 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 great are we going to get 
the bad review because of the long intro or are we going to get a bad review because you said gif and not gif the real questions who cares yep if you're still complaining about gif versus gif you're the kind of person who like is gonna talk shit on me because (laughs) i have an iphone and i don't need that negativity around here so you can just like fuck off like (laughs) i like to use them interchangeably to upset both sides of the aisle Anyway, let's start the show. Welcome to The Strange and Unusual, where we discuss The Strange and Unusual. This is episode 128 of our series, Seeking Out the Weird, the Unexplained, and the Devious from Around the World. I'm Casey. And I'm Roya. And today, our Patreons wanted it. So, er, sorry, hold on. And today our patrons wanted it, kind of. It was actually a tie, so Roy had to break it up. So today we're talking about floods. If you're a part of our Patreon, you know we had a a poll. Uh, it was F words. So we had, what, floods, fires, the French, and Ferdinand. And to my complete and utter surprise, nobody chose floods. Or nobody nobody chose the French, nor did they choose Ferdinand. Which seemed to me like the obvious choices. God, that would be such a funny alternate universe poll where we just pick what no one picked. Yeah, right? Like (laughs) April Fool's Day poll coming up. You got it. It's a pretty funny. Cut that out. We'll actually do that in April. Um, But yeah, so nobody nobody chose what I actually thought they would choose and everybody wanted uh, disasters. So there's that. That tells you what kind of audience we have in the Discord. Yeah. and it was a tie between fires and floods, so Roya said flood. And here we go. Uh, do remember to check us out over on patreon.com slash change unusual. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can find all of those uh, links or screen names in the show notes. Also, we'll talk about those more at the end of the episode, as always. So, would you like to hear about the floods that I've chosen to speak of today? Do I have a choice? So, uh, wee-woos, death, destruction, alcohol abuse, stereotypes, death, again, drowning. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote death twice, so you might as well hear it twice. Uh, But including child death and animal death and death um, by drowning specifically, I guess is what I was trying to write. Uh Um, Classism, oppression, persecution, and discrimination. So, picture it. 1814, London. On October 17th, 1814, it was just another day. That is, until the events that took place in St. Giles Rookery. Uh, A rookery is essentially an English term for a slum, allegedly so-called because of the nesting habits of the rook, a type of corvid, um, as they create large, noisy colonies in trees, as well as the 16th century slang to rook, meaning to cheat or steal, gives you kind of an idea of what they expected of the people in these areas. Gotcha. Uh, People in rookeries were sometimes criminals and prostitutes, but they were often just outsiders like immigrants, uh, particularly the Irish and Jewish uh, communities. Uh, They were poor working class people who took the worst jobs like waste removal and sewage work. Writer Harry Mayhew described the inhabitants as, quote, noisy, riotous lot, fond of street brawls and fat, ragged and saucy. I mean, sounds like you just described you and I. I was like, sounds like we would hang out there. Yeah. Fat, ragged, and saucy is on a t-shirt now. <laughs> Pick it up at <laughs> patreon.com slash change unusual slash shop. I don't know. That's not a real link. Don't go there. I don't know what went available. Anyway, as far as rookeries went, St. Giles was actually pretty infamous. Um, Queen Matilda had opened St. Giles Hospital there in twelfth in the 12th century, um, which was used as a leprosy colony. Throwback to that episode. Um And then in the 15th century, they added gallows to the area for public executions. Oh, good. The Great Plague of London is said to have broke out there in 1665. It was all around a great place to be, you know? I mean, it certainly sounds like it. Generally bad vibes. So in 1809, Henry Mew bought the Horseshoe Brewing Company in the area on Oxford Street and Totem Court Road. Or Tottenham. Tottenham Court Road. (laughs) Mew's Brewery would boast a massive wooden fermentation vat that stood at 22 feet high that could hold around 3,500 barrels of beer, specifically porter, 
held in these massive iron hoops that went around the the vat. Uh Uh-oh. On the afternoon of the 17th, around 4.30, a storehouse clerk named George Crick noted that one of the 700-pound iron bands around the vat had slipped off. Crick had worked at the brewery for something like 17 years now, and he knew that this did happen on occasion. It wasn't that big of a deal. And it's said that a supervisor actually told him it wasn't a real problem and that uh, it happened, you know, like like I said. Uh, and he was told to write a note to have one of the partners get it fixed when the company had the time and money to do so. George Crick was about to discover that that was a mistake. The giant fermentation vat was full, save for the final four inches of space at the top, and the pressure from the fermentation was building. But an hour later, there was an explosion of hot fermenting beer, and an estimated 3,200 imperial gallons of beer rushed out of the vat. Jeez. It's said that the explosion was heard from over five miles away, and the vat burst into splinters, and the force collapsed a 25-foot brick wall. Wow. The explosion had caused a chain reaction as the weight of the liquid broke the valves to the other casks, and so more beer poured out. This caused a 15-foot-high wave of porter to flood the narrow streets, which had no drainage, and it filled basements of over like two tenement houses, causing their foundations to crumble and the houses to collapse. A pub was destroyed as well. 14-year-old Eleanor Cooper scoured pots outside. Outside, <laughs> uh, scoured the pots outside um, at the outdoor water pump for the in front of the pub um, in the shadow of that 25 foot brick wall, and was later discovered dead in the rubble. It's believed that the blast of the storm of bricks likely killed her instantly. But she wasn't the only casualty. Uh, while researching, I found that numbers varied significantly. Um, it's an important to note that no one inside the brewery died, though, of course. Um, it was all outward. Most sources claim that there were nine casualties, including eight women and children. Mary Banfield was having tea with her four-year-old daughter, Hannah, when the flood destroyed their home, killing Hannah as she was swept away in the liquid, though other sources say that both died. Another story tells of a group of five mourners in the basement of a tenement house grieving the loss of John Seville, a two-year-old boy who had just died the day before. It said that the beer caused the house to collapse and killed those inside, including his mother, Anne. Jeez. One three-year-old boy named Thomas Mulvey uh, and his mother, Mary, she was 30 years old, 65-year-old Catherine Butler, 25-year-old Elizabeth Smith, and another three-year-old girl named Sarah Bates were all casualties in the London beer flood. Rescuers did their best, wading into the waist-high beer to dig through destroyed buildings and try to find survivors, while telling onlookers to keep it down so they could listen for screams. London's Morning Post said, The surrounding scene of desolation presents a most awful and terrific appearance, equal to that which fire or earthquake may be supposed to occasion. And then it called it, quote, one of the most melancholy accidents we ever remember. I mean, yeah. One thing papers at the time don't mention is drunken riots or crowds of people filling up cups with beer. But as the weeks passed, these rumors started to spread. There was a lot of anti-Irish sentiment at the time that this happened. And this was, again, a fairly Irish neighborhood. Um, So people started to add that rumor to the mix, even though that wasn't a part of the news. Um, The elusive ninth victim that I said may or may not have been a part of that um, and is listed on various websites, seemed to be a nameless man who died from alcohol poisoning. But it's unlikely that it ever actually happened, as it wasn't recorded in the news of the time, as I mentioned. Um, and most of the papers actually said the crowds behaved well. These papers weren't exactly pro-Irish, so had there been any debauchery, they would have definitely said so. Now, just two days after the flooding of the streets, an inquest was formed to investigate the tragedy. George Crick and other employees testified on the matter, um, Bodies of the victims weren't expect- inspected. Uh, the brewery itself was visited by these investigators. And in the end, it was decided that no one was at fault for the tragedy, except God. It was deemed an act of God, and the victims had met their deaths by casually, accidentally, and by mix- by misfortune. So the brewery was not held accountable. The loss of product of Mew & Co. was around 23,000 pounds. So that's approximately $1.25 million today. But you know, the government loves to give handouts to wealthy people. So not only did they avoid having to pay for any damage or loss of life, uh, 
they actually got a tax break for the bureau that they had lost, saving them from bankruptcy. Nothing went to the families, and it was actually other citizens who streamed in to pay their respects to the dead who would leave pennies and shillings to pay for funerals. The event did cause wooden fermentation tanks to be phased out and replaced by concrete vats, which is important later. But the smell of beer lingered in the area for months afterwards. I'm sure. That's a lot of beer. <laughs> the Horseshoe Brewing uh, brewing Company or Brewery, uh, they went back into production and remained open until 1921, was demolished in 1922. And according to Atlas Obscura, while there is no plaque or memorial to signify the beer flood, a local tavern, the Holborn Whippet, serves a special porter commemorating the beer flood once a year on the anniversary of the event. And that is the London Beer Flood. Not to be outdone, on Friday, June 18th, 1875, around 4.45 p.m., everything seemed to be in order in Lawrence Malone's Malt House and Bond Storehouse on Artie Street in the Liberties area of Dublin. And now I'm telling you, I'm not making any commentary on Irish drinking culture and stereotypes, but we're definitely going to be talking about Irish drinking culture and stereotypes. <laughs> 5,000 hogshead equal to about 2,602 imperial, thousand imperial gallons, or that that would equal a little more than 300,000 gallons US. Um, they're it's all whiskey being stored at a value of 54,000 pounds, or at this time, four to six million today. Wow. Um, now, that was hard for me to figure out, uh, and there's a, such a discrepancy because pounds to inflated dollars websites are more difficult to come by than just dollars to dollars. But anyway, Irish whiskey was massively popular at the time and outsold other spirits in the market like scotch and bourbon. There were over 1,000 legal distilleries in Ireland by the mid-1800s, and five of the largest were in Dublin, and uh, warehouses were required to store all that whiskey while it aged. This was one such warehouse. At 8, 8.30 that evening, an alarm was raised that there was a fire. It's still unknown what actually started the fire. Uh, the Dublin Fire Brigade was unable to control the flames, and by 9.30, they had spread, heating up the wooden cask and causing them to explode. Generally, the whiskey would be diluted before being put out for consumption, uh, but this was hundreds of thousands of gallons of concentrated, high-proof whiskey. Oh, God. It made it out onto the streets, and to make matters worse... It carried the fire with it. Oh, good. So it was a literal river of fire pouring out into the neighborhood. Yeah, it was such a huge source, too. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, and just, I'm going to correct myself because it looks like I put the time for the London fire or the London flood here when I said at the beginning, I said it was 445. That was wrong. It was, it was around 830. My bad. Anyway, so it's 930. We're fire, floods of whiskey fire in the streets. Uh, unfortunately, some of the first casualties was a pen of pigs, and it was their horrific squealing that actually alerted people nearby of the problem, and thus were able to evacuate the area. Residents had no choice but to flee. There wasn't anything they were able to do about putting out the fire because it was such a high-proof uh, whiskey that was... Yeah, you literally would just have to wait for it to burn off. Yep. Like, that's really your only option. Yeah. That's awful. And similar to the London uh, flood, there is another story about people in a house in the middle of a wake until the whiskey fire seeped into their home and they had to carry out their dead loved one as they ran away from that. Animals that had been let out or escaped from pens were running through the streets. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, fighting the fire seemed fruitless. That was a lot of Fs and I should have reconsidered that sentence. Well, this is um, the F episode. <laughs> Hundreds of police officers, soldiers, firefighters, they were all on the scene within 15 minutes of the alarm being raised. Water spread the flames further as the whiskey would sit on top of the water and then moved around even more, uh, burning and spreading flames as it went, as the volume increased, essentially. Sand and dirt slowed the spread, but it would actually just become saturated with liquid and then sit there burning. So the founder of the brigade, Captain James Robert Ingram, told his men that there was no real way to save the buildings from being burned unless they could stop the flow of whiskey. And so he ordered the brigade to start making dams in the streets using stones and gravel. Seems like a great idea. But of course, the whiskey leaked past the gravel and kept going. And remember that it's 1875. So the first motor car wasn't imported into Ireland until 1896. Horses are abundant. 
So James Ingram decides to damn the she- the streets with horse shit. <laughs> so I'm just like I was writing this and I'm just like imagining the smell of burning horse shit. Well, and then it's also the like I mean maybe you're going to get there, but like isn't manure explosive? Like can it be used in explosives? Uh yes. Uh fertilizer can be, okay. but it's usually because of the addition of Okay. different things. Cuz I was but just no, thinking actually, I was just thinking that's this is about to get way fucking worse. <laughs> no, it actually worked. Um Well, that's good. I just imagine were... it like blowing up and then you got like <laughs> shit on fire raining from the sky now. Like. <laughs> the fire brigade actually was stealing horse shit out of um store yards. Oh no, don't dams. take my horse shit. <laughs> What will I do without it? What will I feed my kids? <laughs> and as the flow stopped, the flames smothered to the point that they could put the, put out the fires. Um, 13 people did die that night, but it wasn't due to the explosion of casks, nor the fire. No one died of smoke inhalation. No one drowned. William Smith met his friend, John McCrane, around 10 p.m. The two of them had gotten word about the bizarre fire and wanted to go see it for themselves. According to the Irish Times, by the time that William and John set out for the blaze, the flow measured two feet wide and six inches deep and stretched for more than 400 meters down one side of Mill Street. People were scooping up the liquid in cups and jugs in their hands. Some even took off their boots to use as a vessel to drink from. The cause of death for all 13 people that night was alcohol poisoning from drinking, quote, freely of the derelict whiskey. Imagine this, this whiskey has now been through horse shit, uh, whatever's on the street at the time, which is probably more horse shit and people shit, potentially. Like, you don't know what's on the streets, man. But one of those 13 people was actually William Smith, and he was just 21 years old. At Smith's inquest, John McCrane described Smith drinking quite a bit from cupped hands. He said Smith was falling down and becoming insensible. Two strangered, strangered? Strangers. <laughs> helped him carry Smith part of the way home, and then neighbors helped to bring him the rest of the way. William got home just before midnight, but was taken to Richmond Hospital the next morning in a state of, quote, profound coma. He initially started to improve under treatment, even regaining consciousness at one point, but he died on Sunday night. Dublin's mayor, or Lord Mayor, uh, Paul, Peter Paul McSwinney, McSwinney. Hold on. Let me let me start that again. Dublin's Lord Mayor, Peter Paul McSwinney, was amazed that the death toll wasn't higher. He said, quote, The time given for escape in some places during the progress of the fire was so short, I was apprehensive that some people should be left in danger in the garrets and cellars of the district. But on inquiry, I was happy to learn that no life was lost during the Great Conflagration. He added, In the present case of the unfortunate victims, apparently could not restrain themselves, as I understand, from the burning fluid. This event was later dubbed the Great Whiskey Fire of Dublin, and the Illustrated London Times reported, quote, four persons have died in the hospital from the effects of drinking whiskey, which was burning hot as it flowed. Two corn porters named Healy and McNulty were found in a lane off Cork Street, lying insensible with their boots off, which they had evidently used to collect the liquor. There were, there were many persons in the hospital who are suffering from the same cause. Two boys are reported to be dying, and it is feared that other deaths will follow. This, of course, and stories like this, perpetuated the stereotype of the Irish being simply unable to fucking help themselves from drinking themselves to death. But most people weren't out binging. They were drinking what they considered to be a normal amount. They just weren't aware what they were drinking was undiluted and so high proof. Even small amounts put people in the hospital at least 10 having symptoms that included blindness and brain damage. There was an extensive, there was extensive damage to the community, displacing many families. And as for the warehouse, according to the Irish Times, only 61 barrels were recovered of the 5,000 that had been in storage. And some went missing under uh, suspicious circumstances as well. <laughs> Said three casks were rolled into the coom, and the result was that six men were arrested in a beastly state of intoxication, several more being conveyed to the hospital. The Dublin Fire Brigade had proved their worth to the community, and they were established a uh, permanent fire department there. Those who fought to put out the fire and help citizens to safety were commended for their bravery. And additionally, this event made distillers aware of potential dangers in storing that much high-proof booze in one place. Uh, fire prevention measures were put in place to keep this kind of thing from happening again. 
an Irish whiskey debuted recently called Flaming Pig. The label says that it is meant to honor the pig that saved Irish whiskey. <laughs> I I think that story is so interesting because it does make so much sense that like London would put out these stories that are like the Irish drank themselves to death. And it's like somebody scooped up a celebratory cup after the fire was out and went, hooray, I'll have a cup of this whiskey and yeah. didn't realize it was going to fucking kill them is different from drinking yourself to death. Yeah. Fucking English. <laughs> I'm so Look, are you seeing any of the memes that are coming out from Ireland right now? Not from Ireland specifically, but... They're so... Like, I know India's doing a bunch, and the indigenous people are doing a lot, but the ones that I've seen come out of Ireland are just so on fucking point right now. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, right, yeah, 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 rip, whatever, she's your grandma, I don't care. This is so funny. <laughs> P.S. If you haven't heard, the queen died, like, three weeks ago at this point. Yeah, if you somehow haven't heard, <laughs> because everyone in the U.S. is acting like they're... She was our fucking queen. Yep. We, I think we like, if I'm not mistaken, when that whole revolution thing happened, we kind of went, we don't have a queen anymore or a king. Yeah. I think that's what happened. Yeah. Like the only member of the royal family I claim is Princess Diana. Uh, I don't, you know what? I don't mind. Uh, Harry lives here now. Yeah. But he, he was like, no, no, thanks. I'm out. Thanks for treating my wife like shit. Did you see though that, um, she showed up? Uh, was the name Meghan Markle, right? Meghan Markle, yeah. Yeah, that she went to one of the like funeral processions wearing what Princess Diana wore in mourning. No. Yep. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> like the exact same outfit with like the red poppy and everything. We were talking about conspiracy theories the other night, and we were saying like um, the Queen Lizzie drove ambulances during World War Two and was known to be somewhat of a mechanic. Mm -hmm. Now you know the whole thing with Diana was her brakes. Yep. And it's like, you know who knew how to get in there? <laughs> you meant Lizzie the Deuce getting in there, like, ripping up the brakes. <laughs> That's what we've decided happened. Just don't come at, don't come at us. That's just what we decide in this house. You can have your opinion, we can have our opinion. Yeah, if you guys can believe that, uh, not you guys, I, I doubt anybody who listens to this podcast thinks this, but if people can believe that Trump won the election, I can believe that ancient Queen Elizabeth got under a car and cut the brake lines in Princess Diana's car. And I, I choose to believe that. Hi, bud. Are you coming over to sit with me again? Make a decision, please. Oh, big jump. Okay. So, with that said, let's jump across the pond to Boston. Boston. Hi. Sit down. Thank you. Thank you. Th this is not, you're not doing a great job of this. Sorry, cat in invading the space. <laughs> All right. Boston. It was 1915 and the Purity Distilling Company of a subsidiary of United States Industrial Alcohol had built two no, it didn't. Hold on. It was 1915, and Purity Distilling Company, a subsidiary of United States Industrial Alcohol, had built a storage facility on the waterfront at 529 Commercial Street, near the elevated railways. You're familiar with Boston, right? You lived. Mm -hmm. You lived in it. <laughs> I did. I lived adjacent to Boston. I lived in Massachusetts, but... Boston adjacent. Yeah. So you know how the winters are there. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. That helps with this story. Uh, industrial alcohol, by the way since I was just talking about it, and then I distracted myself, uh, <laughs> was made from fermented molasses and used for things like munitions and weapons, TNT, gunpowder, that sort of thing. Molasses, for those of you not in the know, is the thick, dark syrup made from sugar-making process. It's like a byproduct which was left over after the sugar has been crystallized out and removed uh, by centrifuging when processing sugar cane or beets. Lighter grades are sweet and used in baking for candy making and rum. And for a long time, molasses was the sweetener of choice uh, used at homes uh, because refined sugar was so expensive. The darker, lower grades that make blackstrap molasses are used in animal feed and things like vinegar. But that's not really important for the story. Just a fun little side note. Fun fact. <laughs> but the ethanol or the ethyl alcohol uh, being made with the molasses at this time was hella important due to the little World War I thing happening between uh, 1914 and 1918, for those who don't know. But after the war, the molasses was used to make rum in the last days before Prohibition. This, lo <coughs> this location unloaded, stored, and processed an absolutely massive amount of molasses, which were brought in by ship, usually. 
Now, the tank that stored this molasses was over 50 feet high and 90 feet in diameter, holding 2.5 million gallons of molasses looming over a playground, a fire station, and private homes. You're leaving? God, you just got here. (laughs) So imagine like three and a half Olympic swimming pools worth of molasses. And there were problems from the start. Once construction began, the company decided to go ahead and put in an order uh, for more than half a million gallons of molasses so they could start filling the absolute monstrosity of a tank as soon as it was complete. But delays in the early phases of construction meant that it was a race to finish before the order arrived, lest the molasses be dumped into the ocean and the boat returned to the Caribbean. And the company had hired an overseer who was not an engineer, but had a career in finance. It was finished in the nick of time, but had issues early on, like I said. Uh, according to Stephen Puglio, uh, of the uh, he's the author of the book Dark Tide, The Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919, people would even send their children with buckets to collect free molasses from the leaking tank. And the company received complaints that the tank was leaking, so it painted the tank brown to hide the leaks rather than to repair them. <laughs> uh, Puglio told NPR... Quote, there were often comments made by people around the vicinity that this tank would shudder and groan every time it was full. The company's employees even expressed concern. Uh, History.com quotes civil engineer and professor Max Rousseau in his 2015 analysis saying, When a laborer brought actual shards of steel from the tank's walls to the treasurer's office as evidence of the potential danger, he replied, I don't know what you want me to do. The tank still stands. So that's great. OSHA should have gotten involved. I don't think think so. This is probably one of the many (laughs) things that caused the development of OSHA. So now it's 1919. There's not a lot going on at the time. I'm just kidding. There was a lot going on at the time. So the Great War had just ended. The Paris Peace Conference uh, was set to begin, which would lead to the Treaty of Versailles. That was supposed to happen on January 18th. Uh, Prohibition was about to be ratified. You got the Spanish flu pandemic in full fucking swing. So when the vat finally burst around 12.30 p.m. on January 15th, no one was prepared for that. Just two days before the shipment, just, sorry, just two days before, comma, a shipment of 600,000 gallons of hot molasses was delivered to Boston, where it mixed with the cold syrup that was already being stored in the tank. Again, this is January in Boston. And on January 15th, it was a warmer than normal. Oh, hey. Yeah, it's your My birthday. birthday. <clears throat> 1919. That's the exact year. Can't wait for the can't wait for the hellscape. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm she's ancient. Yes. Uh, I'm older than the queen. And still kicking. Yeah. You I do. look pretty good. Uh so, January 15th. Warmer than a normal day in Boston in January. It was a nice, comfortable 40 degrees. I mean, for January in Boston, that's actually right? kind of warm. Um <laughs> Like <laughs> and and the temperature rose for January in Oklahoma. That's actually kind I mean, of warm. I would say that is true, except for that I never know how warm it's going to be in the in January anymore because there have been some pr- pretty balmy days here because climate change. Yeah. Thanks. Um, it's not real. Shut what up. What a fucking hoax. So anyway, yeah. forty degrees and the temperatures had uh, allegedly come up quite rapidly. From freezing temperatures to stays before. Uh, people were like eating their fucking lunches outside. They thought it was such a nice change in the weather. Uh, so the expansion of the syrup as temperature increased was just one facet of the impending disaster. As the poor construction and engineering, the walls were made of thin, brittle steel, too much stress on the rivets, and general lack of repairs all compounded on an already sticky situation. That afternoon, witnesses reported feeling the ground shake and hearing a roar as it collapsed. Similar to the passing of an elevated train, others reported the sound of machine guns as the rivets shot out of the tank. With this metallic roar, 2.3 million gallons of molasses burst from the tank in a giant wave. Approximately 25 feet tall, though I've read as low as 15 feet and as high as 40 feet in some sources. And approximately 165 feet wide. And when you hear somebody use the term slow as molasses, you can now tell them that molasses can move upwards of 35 miles per hour with enough pressure behind it. The wave tore through Commercial Street. It lifted an elevated train off the tracks. Uh, The steel supports of those tracks were snapped. It downed electrical poles. Buildings were crushed and others were just yeeted off their foundations completely. And anyone in its path 
was essentially obliterated. There was a report of a woman who said she saw men in a horse-drawn carriage trying to outrun the wave. Antonio and his sister Maria Distasio uh, were with Pasquale and uh, Ian Tosca. Uh, they were gathering firewood for their families while they walked home from school for their lunch. They were caught in the wave. Ten-year-old Maria was smothered, suffocating to death, and ten-year-old Pasquale was killed by a railroad car. Pasquale's father, Giuseppe, reportedly watched from their apartment window as his son disappeared in the mass of dark liquid. Eight-year-old Antonio suffered a severe head injury after being flung into a light post, but he survived. Quote, he heard his mother call his name and couldn't answer. His throat was so clogged with the smothering goo. He passed out, then opened his eyes to find three of his sisters staring at him. They had found little Anthony stretched under a sheet on the dead side of the body littered floor. And some some sources referred to him as Anthony like this one did and other ones did Antonio. So I feel like that was like his white name, I guess. Yeah. Because at the time, the Irish weren't white. Or the, the Italians weren't white either. They were Italian. Mm-hmm. Anyway, six workers who were eating lunch in the public works yard. Like I said, people were eating outside. It was a warm day for them. Um, they were swallowed up and drowned in the flood. A nearby firehouse was pushed off its foundation. And the second story of the building ended up collapsing into the first. Martin Clofferty? Clofferty? Um, his home was swept away by blood. By the blood. By the flood. Sorry. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Sorry, guys. By the flood it of got blood. Really, it got really Halloween there for a second. Um, f- swept away by the flood and then smashed into the elevated train platform. Uh, Clofferty said uh, he was allegedly called one of the best known young men in Boston by the Boston Post. Uh, but he had just woken up from a nap because he worked the late shift at his bar, the Pen and Pencil Club. He reportedly said, I was in bed on the third floor of my house when I heard a deep rumble. When I awoke, it was in several feet of molasses. He nearly drowned himself, but then used his bed as a makeshift boat and attempted to save his family. And once the wave finally receded, the city was left with half a mile of waist-high molasses, a number of destroyed buildings, and the bodies. God, can you imagine trying to, like, maneuver through, like, waist-high water is yep. bad enough, but, like, waist-high molasses? Well, we'll get there. The Boston Post describes a scene, quote, molasses, waist-deep, covered the street and swirled and bubbled around the wreckage. Here and there struggled a form. Whether it was animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass, showed that there was any life. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. Rescue workers like police, firefighters, sailors from the USS Nantucket, and even the women of the Red Cross were on the scene in minutes. But the molasses had cooled now, as most... Oh my gosh. Um, but the molasses had cooled now that more of its surface area was exposed to the cold air and it had started to harden. Like molasses doesn't harden like um like the stuff you put on top of an ice cream, you know, like that quick hard stuff, but it does congeal. So it got really hard to move in. And these rescue workers had to work at not getting stuck themselves. And many did in the two to three foot goop, like just on the roads. And then they had to be pulled out themselves. I heard a soundbite from 1981, an interview with the Stoneham Public Library. A guy who was a witness at the time named Harry Howe uh, was one of the sailors on the scene. And he spoke uh, saying, quote, there was an arm sticking out from underneath the wheel of a truck. So two of us got a hold of his arm. And unfortunately, we pulled his arm off. Yeah, Ooh. It, it's icky. People trapped in molasses were screaming for help. But the Boston Globe reporting that those injured and stuck in molasses had, quote, injuries causing them to shriek with every move. Priests from nearby churches uh, started going around and administering last rites to these victims. And the screams did not subside when the victims were recovered and sent to hospitals. Workers' uniforms were covered in blood and molasses. Blood for real this time. Not accidental typo. And the hospital workers had a hard time actually making out the age and sex of the people who were coming in because they were just so coated in molasses. People flocked to these hospitals and relief centers and morgues trying to find their loved ones. The Boston Globe writing, scores of anxious men and women hastened to these places to ascertain if any of their relatives were among the dead and injured. And many of those who found their fears true became hysterical, some demanding medical aid. It took several days for rescue workers to go through the ruined buildings looking for survivors, recovering bodies, and euthanizing any trapped horses at the end of a barrel. 
Cofferty uh, on his bedboat had been able to save his sister, Teresa, but his mother, 65-year-old Bridget, and his younger brother, Stephen, were among the casualties of the disaster. He told the Boston Globe, It seemed as if the house had split in two when it hit the elevated structure, and I was, the one, I was in on one side and my people in the other. I couldn't find my mother. I shouted for her, yelled for those who had come along the street to find her, but I couldn't locate her. It seemed an hour while I was trying to find her, but soon someone told me that she had been found and that she was dead. The firefighters who'd been eating lunch in Engine 31 Firehouse were freed from a pocket of trapped air in the flooded building after several hours of work. The one, 38-year-old Joe, George Leahy, didn't make it. All in all, 21 men, women, and children, 12 horses, and an uncounted number of dogs and cats died as a result of the Great Molasses Flood, and over 150 people were injured by the event. The victims include 37-year-old Filomino Gallarine. Oh my god, hold on. Yeah. (laughs) The victims include 37-year-old Filomino Gallarani, who was reported missing in the early days after the flood, but wasn't found for 11 days after. Stephen Clofferty, Martin's younger brother, died before the year was out in an asylum. His family argued that the trauma of the flood ultimately led to his early death at just 34 years old. Maria D'Astasio was found under a pile of molasses barrels near the bank of the tank. She was just 10. And Pasquale Antikoska was found in the ruins of the tank. Yeah, it sucks. Peter Francis, (laughs) an Irish immigrant who worked uh, as a blacksmith, briefly regained consciousness was given his last rites before he died in the hospital. 17-year-old Eric Laird was found dead under molasses-coated mass of wrecked auto trucks, express boxes, and packages in a freight shred. Shed. Shred. Shed. Shed. Uh, the firefighter who died in Engine 31 Firehouse, Georgia Leahy, was reported to the by the Globe to be found under heavy timbers held down by the piano and pool table, still warm, but with life extinct. 76-year-old Michael Sinnott from Dorchester was at work when he was thrown, quote, several feet against a pile of paving stones and suffered a fracture skull, both legs broken, contusions, and internal injuries. I don't want to still be working at 76. Can I just say that? The last body recovered from the flood wasn't found for four months. It was 32-year-old uh, Cesare Niccolo, uh, and he was pulled from the harbor under commercial wharf. Pulio wrote in his book, No prominent people died during the molasses flood, and the survivors did not go on to become famous. They were mostly immigrants and city workers who returned to their workday lives, recovered from injuries, and provided for their families. So the press had their hands full. According to Pulio, there were like seven daily papers in Boston at the time, and the flood was such a huge event that it knocked the Prohibition Amendment off the front page. Cleanup, cleanup crews used salt water from the city fireboat wow. to remove the goop from the wreckage in the street because regular water wasn't doing it. There were comments from people who came, or rather, there were comments that people who came to clean up or to help with the recovery of victims or simply take a peek at the wreckage would take molasses home with them on their hands, feet, shoes, clothes, whatever, and started tracking molasses all over Boston. And it took six months and something like 87,000 man hours to clean the city. And the molasses was eventually washed out into the water, which turned Boston Harbor brown for weeks. According to some, more than two months. After most of the syrup was washed away, salt and sand were dumped onto the streets to absorb what was left. The environmental impacts of washing the molasses into the harbor wasn't really considered because it's 1919 and the ocean is the world's greatest trash can. That said, uh, in Honolulu in 2013, a pipeline owned by Matson that moved molasses from Honolulu to ships going to California leaked nearly a quarter million gallons of molasses into the Honolulu Harbor. There's little you can do to fix a spill of that kind because molasses is so soluble, uh, but people were told to stay out of the water. Um, The density of the liquid immediately killed, like suffocated most of the marine life. But according to an article from National Geographic, in at least one way, it's less impactful than an oil spill, which is great. It said the material, the, sorry, it said bacteria acts as an indicator for the cleanup, removing oxygen from the water and producing carbon dioxide, creating an environment that will help resident bacteria absorb the spill. Bacteria have been multiplying due to the presence of molasses. And because of the solubility of molasses, the sugars are easier for those bacteria to access. 
that the lack of oxygen in the water does mean marine life won't be able to breathe and recovery will be slow. I didn't find much of anything on the effects of the fishing industry around the Boston Harbor at the time, but I am sure it was problematic. Though Jennifer Bowen, professor of marine science at Northeastern University, suggests that the waters in the harbor would have been cooler because it was January, and so the bacteria would have consumed molasses more slowly because of the cooler temps, and so might not depleted as much oxygen all at once. She said the actual impact would depend on how much of the molasses persisted in the water until the water warmed back up and how much of it got diluted and washed out to sea. While we now, or while we don't know and may never know what the impact of washing 2 million gallons of molasses into the harbor was, we do know the impact on the people and we know the historic lawsuit that came with it. There was actually speculation at the time that a group of Italian anarchists were responsible for blowing up the tank. Or at least that's what the corporation wanted you to believe. But it was ultimately the U.S. uh, US industrial alcohol that went to trial. And 119 plaintiffs took up cases against USIA, which were eventually combined into a mammoth case, which was in litigation for more than five years. Julio said this was the first case which called in expert testimony on such a large scale. Engineers, metallurgists, uh, architects, technical experts. And this was this completely changed how businesses and governments interacted and paved the way for future class action lawsuits. He said that architects needed to show their work, engineers needed to sign and seal their plans, and building inspectors needed to come out and look at projects. All of that comes as a result of the Great Boston Molasses Flood case. Finding that the walls of the tank were too thin, thinner than the plans had called for, and too few rivets were used in the building of the tank. There were more than 1,500 exhibits present, and over a 1,000 witnesses testified at this case. In the end, they were held liable for the damages and loss of life, and later paid the flood victims and their families around $628,000 in damages, which was about $8 million today. The flood remains a part of Boston's folklore, though only a small plaque in the North End commemorates the disaster. disaster. And it reads simply, on, Ju- on January 15th, 1919, a molasses tank at 529 Commercial Street exploded under pressure, killing 21 people. A 40-foot wave of molasses buckled the elevated railroad tracks, crushed buildings, and inundated the neighborhood. Structural defects in the tank combined with the unseasonably warm temperatures contributed to the disaster. That's all it says. The smell of molasses was said to have lingered for several weeks, and for decades after, people claimed that on a hot day, you could still smell it. And some say it lingers still. NPR references one gentleman, uh, Nick Labonte, who suggests that people still smell it to this day. To end on a high note, just months after the molasses flood, Brooklyn dealt with its own meltdown. Uh, When on May 12th, 1919, a fire broke out at Rockwood and Company on Waverly Avenue. Rockwood was one of Hershey's biggest rivals at the time and the second largest chocolatier in the country, so I'm sure you know where this is headed. Rockwood was founded in 1886 and eventually took up an entire block of Park Avenue between Waverly and Washington. There's a lot less information about this one uh, and a lot less horror, so. The fire started in the early hours of the morning, and as firefighters began putting out the fire, it was discovered that flames had melted a substantial amount of butter and chocolate. So the streets ran with rivers of chocolate, clogging the neighborhood storm drains, backing up and collecting on roadways, uh, flowing downhill to Flushing Avenue. Articles from the time recount urchins collecting chocolate in the streets, saying that they had to be, they were called truants and urchins and we were carried back to school with chocolate smeared all over their faces. So, floods. <laughs> there was one I really wanted to talk about, but there wasn't a whole lot on it, where uh, after Brexit, a bunch of like, um, wine activists, I don't know how else to say it, apparently went to this red wine manufacturer in France and started busting open all the casks because they like white wine better. Yeah, I didn't read into it a whole lot, but that was like the very surface level of what I got. Wow. If you're interested, I'll post Rude. stuff about it in the Discord. But that's that's floods, everybody. I like that you went the um, man-made flood route instead of like a natural disaster or something. Non-water. Non-water floods. I, yeah. wanted, I wanted alcohol floods. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine with it. I don't have any complaints. But molasses sort of makes yeah, alcohol. Right? So I thought it counted. Well, that's all that matters. Who else am I doing this for? Listeners? Fuck them. <laughs> you got like two. <laughs> Love you guys, though. You did pick this yeah. episode, sort of. <laughs> and I included a fire for the other 50%. 
Well, thanks for joining us today for these dramatic disasters. Um, We hope you'll reach out to us with your own experiences. We want your stories, your questions, and your feedback. Send us an email at strangeunusualpodcast at gmail.com. If you're sending a story, we just ask that you put listener story in the subject line so you can sort through those a little more easily. Have you ever been the victim of a a non-water flood? Ooh, a sewage flood sounds disgusting. Yeah, that sounds awful. Yep. Ew. I don't want to think about that, and now it's all I can think about. You can also find us on Instagram at strange underscore unusual underscore podcast, or in our personal accounts, Roy Rampage and Calamity Casey. You can find us on Twitter at underscore strange unusual at Calamity Casey and at Roy Rampage. We're on Facebook; just search for the Strange Unusual Podcast. And Roya is trying to start streaming again. Twitch.tv slash Roy Rampage. You can also get us at patreon.com slash strange unusual, where we are doing polls and getting information that you want into your ears. To your ear holes. Polls <laughs> to your, your ear holes. holes. Polls That's for your ear holes. The new title. Polls for your ear holes. Yeah, go vote. <laughs> this, uh, this coming week, we're going to be putting up the poll for October. I believe Roy is going to be doing Halloween-themed items, so you can pick from witches, werewolves, ghosts, and vampires. So go uh, sign up over yeah. there. It's just $2 per month, and just hop onto our Discord, sign up for the polls, do your thing. It'll be a great time. I'm going to be starting uh, yeah. the stream of uh, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey this coming month. So you can join us for that. It'll be a great time. I watched it twice now and it's more horrible every time. Yeah, I'm excited. I haven't watched. I still haven't watched also, it. Also, uh, so. if you can't join our Patreon, uh, like I said, <laughs> we are always understanding of financial uh, restrictions. Just ask that you like, share, subscribe, review. If you give us a five-star review, we'll read your review, whether it's good or bad. It just has to be five stars. It could say, these dumb bitches yep. aren't very funny. Five stars. They wouldn't be wrong. This was not a funny episode. They wouldn't be wrong. Uh, these, the flood of blood, would that's like some biblical shit. Oh, well, I mean, the, the flood of blood. I could have done the arc and talked about what an asshole God is for, yeah. for an hour. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if we were doing an episode about mythology. <laughs> you could say... These dumb bitches talk too much. Yeah. At the beginning These dumb of the bitches episode. Five are stars. blasphemous. Five stars. Blasphemy. Five stars. Ten out of ten. <laughs> I'm Way praying for again. for getting a smote. Getting, <laughs> getting a smote. Smited. Smote me. <laughs> smote. <laughs> what is he saying for someone? Smite me, Almighty Smiter. Yeah. And then and then and then it's repeated by Morgan Freeman later in the show in the movie. Morgan Freeman yeah. would be a good He's got the voice for it. He do. He do. Anyway, share us with your friends. Share us with your enemies. As always, have have a good... Yeah. Share us with your priest. Share us with your blasphemers. <laughs> Maybe don't. Maybe do. <laughs> well... <laughs> Not if you want to keep going to that church. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm saying. Right. Bye. Anyway, bye.